Luke chapter 2, as we talk about Christmas stuff. We're going to read uh, the first 20 verses. Luke chapter 2 and the account of the birth of our Savior. It says in verse 1, Now it came about in those days that a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus, Augustus, excuse me, Augustus. <laughs> Let's call him that. Caesar Augustus, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while, I'm not even going to try that name, was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for their census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee in the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that this morning we can be reminded of the glorious incarnation, that God, you draped yourself in humanity, that you might die for the sins of humanity. Lord, it is amazing. It is glorious. It is beyond our comprehension. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir these truths in our heart this morning, that they would have an effect in our lives, that this Christmas would be different because we would be more in love with our Savior than ever before. And so, Holy Spirit, work these things in our heart as we study the Word. Pray that you would anoint my lips to teach and that you would cause there to be in us a holy excitement about you and the reality of you and our salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We see in the first three verses of the account here some historical notes, some historical facts. And it's important to know that as we read the Bible, it is a historical book which contains real events. 
Understand that we are not dealing with a collection of unverifiable myths such as Zeus and Apollo on Mount uh, Olympus or Muhammad's night journey on a winged horse to Jerusalem or even the Book of Mormon's claim that Native American Indians are descended from a lost tribe of Israel. These are myths which are not based in any historical fact. But our faith is founded upon fact. And so in juxtaposition to such fables, we have the Bible, which is daily being confirmed with regards to its historical accuracy. In fact, just last month, there was an article by Associated Press, came out on November 10th, 2005, and they reported that archaeologists digging at a site in southern Israel thought to be the ancient city of Gath discovered an amazing inscription. They unearthed a piece of pottery that had the name Goliath on it. Gath is that ancient Philistine city where Goliath was from. You understand that they were digging last month in that city and they unearthed an ancient piece of pottery with the name Goliath on it. Very interesting. Associated Press reported and said, the shard dates back to around 950 B.C., that is, within 70 years of when biblical chronology asserts David squared off against Goliath, making it the oldest Philistine inscription ever found. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We have in our text before us historical facts. It mentions this man named Caesar Augustus, or as we like to call him in first service, Caesar Augustus. We have Caesar Augustus here, who was one of the most remarkable men in history. You know who he was. You know who Caesar Augustus is. He was born with the name Octavian. And he's the guy who was always fighting with Mark Antony. Octavian's, or Caesar Augustus' um, great uncle, was Julius Caesar. Was Julius Caesar. Uh, that was his grandma's brother. And so uh, Octavian was the one who was always fighting with Mark Antony. You've seen the movie. Mark Antony hooks up with Cleopatra. They join forces and come against Caesar Augustus. And uh, Caesar, Augustus, Caesar Augustus defeats them. And he becomes the sole ruler of the Roman world. And it was under his rule, it was under his dominion, that Rome experienced Pax Romana. That 200 years of peace. Caesar Augustus, formerly known as Octavian, issued a decree here in verse 1 that a census be taken of the entire Roman Empire. It was for the purpose of efficiently and effectively taxing his whole kingdom, the entire empire. Luke mentions in verse 2 that this was the first census that was taken while that guy was governor in Syria so that this census would not be confused with the one mentioned in, in Acts chapter 5 verse 37 which took place in A.D. 6. These are historical facts that surround the timing of the birth of Jesus. They are not myths or fables, the things that we read in the Gospels. We see in verse 3 that the way in which the... Um, 
census was conducted, and that's that people had to go to their home city to register. This was not abnormal for the time. We have other ancient records. We have some from Egypt in 104 AD that talk about this methodology. People having to return to their hometown to be registered for the census for the purpose of taxation. It's just on my heart to mention very quickly that God uses everything to his glory, even taxes. We have here a decree for taxation, which was the, uh, uh, the prompting for the fulfillment of prophecy, David going to his hometown. I hope that you realize that in the mundane things of life, when we have to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, God is still yet glorified. God is still working and moving behind the scenes. And if Joseph and Mary had been disobedient and refused to register and pay taxes, there would have been unfulfilled prophecy. But may it never be. The Lord is faithful and so should we be. Amen? And so we have these historical events Justin Martyr, who was an early church father writing in the second century, said that in his own day, more than a hundred years after the time of Jesus, you could look up the registers of the same census that Luke mentions here. You could have looked up the registry for the city of David and seen Joseph and Mary there registered in the second century. They may seem like simple historical facts, but God used them to change all of history. After all, it is called history, his story. And we see that God is the one who raises up nations and brings them down, raises up men and brings them down. And now we pick it up in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. And so now Joseph with Mary embarks upon this journey, realized that they were up in Nazareth and it's about a 70 mile journey as a crow flies from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I have heard liberal Christians, liberal Christian scholars, so to speak, reject these birth accounts from Luke chapter two because they say a man would never take a very pregnant woman on a journey 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And therefore, the accounts must be false. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because it's not something that you would do, it must be false. Well, listen, dude, you didn't walk on the water. You didn't rise from the dead. You didn't die on the cross for my sins. So don't tell me because of your intellectual understanding that because you don't grasp it, the Bible isn't true. You understand what I'm saying? He obeyed the laws of the land. He was rendering unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. And the decree was, go to your hometown. And so he said, Mary, I know that you're very pregnant, but we got to go to Bethlehem. And so he travels there with Mary. And we know that it was prophesied concerning the Messiah that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratath, 
Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Speaking, number one, of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, of his deity, and number two, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That prophecy was given 700 years prior, even a little more, to the coming of the Messiah. Interesting to note, geographically and archaeologically speaking, that Micah, the prophet that received this word from the Lord, was from a little town named Morasheth, which was right near the town of Gath, where they just uncovered that inscription that says Goliath. So Joseph had to go there in that it was his hometown being a descendant of David. Not only was it prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but it was prophesied that he would be a descendant of David, King David of Israel, and that he would sit upon the throne of David. Jesus, to be king of the Jews, had to be of the kingly line of kingly descent, prophesied in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Very familiar passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It was also foretold by the angel Gabriel, turning back one chapter to Luke chapter 1, looking in verse 26, the angel Gabriel said that he would sit on the throne of David, that is Jesus. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. Kind of a funny understatement there. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, number one. He will be called the Son of the Most High, number two. And the Lord God will give him, number three, the throne of his father David. And he will reign, number four, over the house of Jacob. And his kingdom, number five, will have no end. And so the angel Gabriel revealed to the girl Mary these five things about the Messiah and that he would be descended from the king of David. Jesus had to be. And so he was through Mary physically, and he was through Joseph legally. Both of them were descendants of King David. Joseph, of course, was not his real father. We know that from the text, that the Holy Spirit was a way that she conceived of the child. But the legal line came through the father, Joseph, and the physical line came through Mary. That is why we have two different um, 
uh, genealogies in Matthew and Luke. In Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus going through Joseph and up to David's son Solomon and then to David. In Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy of Jesus going through Mary and up to David's son Nathan and then to the king of David. And so he is a descendant of the king of David, both legally and physically. Then we have verse 5 of Luke chapter 2. It says that they went up there in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. She was with child. We know and we understand and we affirm the virgin birth. It is a basic tenet of the historical Christian faith. We know, believe, and affirm the virgin birth, or said more correctly, the virgin conception. This also was prophesied in Scripture over 700 years prior in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, 4. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's not a name in the sense that Yeshua was his name. It's a name in the sense of a title. Like uh, when Jesus comes back, it will say on his thigh, Lord of Lord and King of Kings is his name. It's not a proper name. It's his title. One of those titles is Emmanuel, God with us. But there we have the prophecy 700 years before of the virgin birth. Let's look now back in chapter 1 again of Luke and see how the conception took place. Luke 1. The verse where we left off, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. We also see in Matthew chapter 1, Verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. It was sort of a good thing for Mary and Joseph that they had to leave Nazareth. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, and the Pentateuch specifically, the first five books of the Old Testament and the book of Deuteronomy, my favorite book in the Bible, the book most often quoted by Jesus. You will read in Deuteronomy chapter 22 as your homework later on that if a man was engaged to a woman and she was found not to be a virgin, 
that it was punishable by death. That was the law given to Israel by the Lord their God that was to be obeyed in the land. In fact, we we don't understand, even Christians take this so lightly, but in the law, in the Old Testament, all premarital sex was punishable by death. Adultery was punishable by death. You see, we don't understand that, do we? We've gotten so far from the heart of God and the holiness of God and the fear of God and we make light of such things. Now, we're not under the law. We are under the covenant of grace. And Jesus died that death for those of us who have been fornicators or adulterers. Jesus already died that substitutionary death in our place. But the penalty stays the same. That the wages for sexual immorality is death. And if you do not come to Jesus and you're engaged in premarital sex, sexual immorality, and you do not receive forgiveness, it will mean for you eternal separation from God, which is called the second death. And so it was a good thing, really, that they got to leave Nazareth because she was very pregnant. And you can imagine the rumors. You can imagine the ridicule. And you can imagine the danger that her life was in. It declares emphatically in our text in Luke chapter 2 that Mary was a virgin and that the child in her, in her, she conceived by the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle. The Holy Spirit came upon and there she became pregnant. And for that reason, the child would be called the Son of God. It was a miracle. Contrast that, if you will, with the Mormon teaching with regards to the virgin birth and Mary. The Mormon teaching is that Elohim, God the Father, is a man, flesh and blood. He's in a resurrected body. And they teach that Elohim came to earth, had actual literal sexual intercourse with the virgin, and she conceived that way. I quote for you from Brigham Young. When the time came that his firstborn, the Savior, should come into the world and take a tabernacle, a body, the Father came himself and favored the Spirit with a t- and favored the Spirit with a tabernacle instead of letting any other man do it. Any other man, meaning that the Mormons believe that God is a man, a resurrected, glorified man, but a man nonetheless, flesh and bones. The mantra of the Mormons is, as man is, or, um, as man is, God once was. And as God is, man shall become. And so in their theology, Elohim was once a man. He is now the God of a certain planet. It happens to be this planet. And when he wanted the Savior to come, he came in his physical body, had intercourse with Mary, and she conceived that way. I quote again from Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses. The birth of the Savior was as natural as are the births of our children. It was the result of of natural action. That's not right. God coming to have actual sexual relations with a young woman? This blasphemous view takes its place next to Greek mythology, where we see the so-called Greek gods having relations with women and having offspring. 
You need to know and understand that the Mormon God is not the same God that we worship. It is not the God of the Bible. It is impossible for it to be so. The Mormon God is a false God. And we need to desperately pray in our community that the Lord would open the eyes of Mormons who have been deceived, that they might see the true and living God. The cornerstone of their faith is a belief in many gods, gods who are sexually active and polygamous. It's blasphemy. The truth is given to us in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where it says, For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And so, conceived by the Holy Spirit, in a woman of flesh and bones, it helps us to see then how the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is fully God and fully man. We've already discussed in our study in the book of Colossians that this had to be so. The Savior had to be fully God and fully man. Remember that salvation is only from God. So the Savior could only be God. And this is declared throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at three passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. Isaiah 45, verse 21. And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Isaiah 49, verse 26. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Old Testament declared that only God could be the Savior. And it says in our text that today there has been born for you a Savior whose name is Christ the Lord. God is the only Savior. Therefore, Jesus, if he's the Savior, must be God. We see this declared explicitly in Titus. have it on the PowerPoint. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, that's a reference to the rapture, the blessed hope and the appearing of who? Your great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What are we to do with this knowledge? These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Christmas is our holiday. It's about Jesus Christ. What are we to do with the knowledge that He is the only God and Savior? We are to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let nobody disregard the message of Jesus Christ. He had to be fully God, and so He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And yet the Savior also had to be fully man. And so he was birthed of a woman. Why did he have to be fully man? To die a substitutionary death for man. Only a man could die a substitutionary death for a man. That is in our place. And we know from Leviticus 17.11 and Hebrews 9.22 that it is required that the blood is spilt for the forgiveness of sins because the life is in the blood. 
and the wages of sin is death. And the only payment for death could possibly be a life. And that is why the Bible teaches that Jesus spilt his blood. To have blood, he had to become a man, fully man and yet fully God. And so 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing. Fully God and fully man. The working of God in the virgin, in God's wisdom, this is the way that he brought the Savior about. It allows us to see him being fully God and fully man. Remember what Luke 135 said about this offspring, that he would be holy. That is, he is sinless. Of course Jesus was sinless. He is God, and God is sinless. And even though he was fully man, he remains sinless, as declared in Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners. Jesus Christ was without sin, holy God, though he was holy man. And only Jesus, only Jesus Christ has ever been sinless. Now the Catholic Church teaches a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. Many times we hear that and we think that it refers to the conception of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with that. It refers to the conception of Mary. The Immaculate Conception teaches that Mary was sinless at birth. It speaks of her freedom from original sin. It was declared by Pope Pius IX in 1854 when he said, and I quote, The most holy Virgin Mary was, in the first moment of her conception, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, preserved free from all stain of original sin. And so when you hear the immaculate conception, they're not talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about Mary and it's claiming that she is sinless, not only free from original sin, but they also claim that she was free from practical sin, that she, by a special work of grace, never committed a sin in her life. Now, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible simply does not teach that. Even logically, it doesn't make sense if, you, uh, if Mary is, is sinless at her conception, what about her mom? How did she not inherit original sin? It says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The Bible teaches that we are all sinful at conception, that we have a fallen nature. Spoken of explicitly in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 where it says, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. The clear declaration of the Bible is that everybody that has ever been born of a man and a woman has sinned except for Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Listen, Mary herself confessed that she was a sinner. 
In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, it reads this. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She declared that that child would be her Savior. If she was sinless, there would be no need for a Savior. Mary herself declared that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. And yet Pope Pius IX in 1854 says, No, she was sinless. It's not a biblical teaching. It's an error. Only Jesus Christ is sinless. Therefore, only He could pay the price for our sins. Therefore, only He is the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. He is the only one who is sinless and who could pay for our sins. You must come to Jesus for forgiveness and to be reconnected with God who created you. Amen? We read back in our text, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What an amazing understatement. And she gave birth to her son. I mean, the God of the universe draped himself in humanity the pre-existent God, Jesus Christ, because of his love for you and I and because of his unwillingness that we should pay for our own sin, humbled himself to being born of a woman consumed within the body of a baby, raised in the hands of men and women, crucified at the hands of men. How amazing that God would do this. The most incredible fact in the history of the world, and I love the Bible, it simply says, and she gave birth to her son. It also says that there was no room for them at the end. Isn't that incredible? Here's the birth of the God of the universe. And they knock on the door in the middle of the night. Hey, we need a place to stay. My wife is with child. She, she, she's about to give birth. The time is very soon. We've traveled 70 miles. It's been a long journey from Nazareth. We need a place. <laughs> no room in the inn. It's the same situation today. Jesus made the journey from heaven to earth, draped himself in humanity, was crucified at the hands of men, rose on the third day in glory, has ascended unto heaven, and is coming once again. And yet people say, no room in my heart. No place for that Savior. No place for that infant king. It's incredible to me. It's incredible to me that that night the innkeeper shut the door and to this day people shut their hearts to the reality of Jesus Christ. I want you to look and see with that in mind who this amazing event was first revealed to. Verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Or as it says in another translation, they were sore afraid. I love that phraseology. My wife always quotes it that way. They were sore afraid, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I want you to take note this morning 
that the first ones that had the message revealed to them were shepherds. Now, you've got to understand something contextually and culturally. The shepherds in that time were the outcasts of society. They spent their days out with sheep and not with people. They were considered thieves and unworthy and unreliable men. In fact, their testimony was not accepted in a court of law. A shepherd could come and testify and they were such social outcasts that their testimony was not accepted. And the angel was sent first to these men and said to these men, I bring you good news. Literally, it means that the angel preached them the gospel. That the God of the universe, when he was draped in humanity, wanted those who were the social outcasts the rejected, the despised, the downtrodden. He wanted them to be the first to know and he sent the angel to the shepherds and the angel preached the gospel to these men. That's the heart of God. How humble is our king. How wonderful his love. How incredible the father heart of God. But the most momentous event in history except for the cross and the resurrection was announced first to these shepherds. What else is interesting about these shepherds, these social outcasts, is that the shepherds around Jerusalem in the area of Bethlehem were known to be caring for the temple sheep. They were caring for the little lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple. Day in and day out, they fed, they watered, they led, they protected, they cuddled, they picked parasites from, they raised up these little sheep knowing that they were going to the slaughter. And because they were for the temple, these were the best cared for sheep in all of Israel. Because to be a sacrifice in the temple, they had to be without blemish and without spot. And so the shepherds put tremendous care into these little lambs. And as they did so, they knew, wow, Little lamb, your blood will be spilt to pay the price for somebody's sins. Perhaps mine, perhaps some other Jew, perhaps on the day of atonement for the whole nation of Israel. But little lamb that I have raised, your innocent, unblemished blood will be spilt for somebody else's wickedness one day. And the angel went first to the shepherds and revealed to them the Lamb of God. And said, shepherds, your days of tending these little lambs is over. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. It's unbelievable. It's glorious. They were caring for the sacrificial lambs. And they were the first to meet the lamb. They would be sacrificed on the cross for you and I. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Where did this happen? Well, Justin Martyr, an early church father whom I quoted earlier, in the year 150, said that this place where Jesus was born was a cave in Bethlehem. Just some hundred years after the birth of Jesus, it was understood in the region. That's the place where it took place right there in Bethlehem at a cave. Some years later, there's a church built there and people still think today that that may be the actual cave. When did it take place, this birth and this pronouncement? We're not exactly sure of the exact day, 
The church celebrates Christmas on December 25th. That didn't become popular until the 4th century. But it's possible that his birth was in December. We don't know exactly. Nobody knows. But people often say it, can't, it couldn't have happened in December because it's too cold in Israel. And so the shepherds wouldn't have been out at night. But wait a minute. I checked the weather this morning and the low there in Bethlehem last night was 46. The low in Carpinteria last night was 48. It's not so cold. I've been surfing it in the middle of the night in colder weather than that. And so it's possible that it was the winter time and these shepherds were out. We don't know the exact time when it took place. What we simply know is that God made sure that these social outcasts heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you remember last week's sermon now, it is not up to the angels anymore, but we proclaim Him. We proclaim Jesus Christ at Christmas. It is not up to the angels now. You and I proclaim Him. We do not proclaim the baby that was in a manger. It's incredible that he was in a manger. Again, the humility of our God. You know what a manger was? It's a feeding trough. It's where the cows and the sheep and the goats came and put their snotty faces in it and they ate from it. They had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to go. And so they went into this cave. In those days, the caves were a stable. And there was a manger. They put Jesus in the manger. We don't proclaim the baby that's in the manger. It's not in the manger anymore. We don't even proclaim Jesus upon the cross. I'm sick of seeing little crucifixes with Jesus on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore. We don't go to a grave to venerate the founder of our faith. We go to and we bring people to the risen and exalted King, the Lamb of God. He is risen and exalted. He was born a babe, but he is coming back a conquering king. I don't want you to miss the response of the angels. Verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is well pleased. The angels were absolutely amazed to see their God draped in humanity. Understand that we're told about the angels that are around the throne of God in heaven that they've got six wings. With two, they fly. With two, they cover their feet because they're in the presence of holiness. With two, they cover their eyes. And so we could logically deduce that these angels had never seen the God that they have worshipped for all of eternity since the angels were created. They've never seen the God. And now when he's draped in humanity, the angels looked and they began to sing praises, seen for the first time, the incarnation, seen in bodily form, the God that they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. It says in 1 Timothy 3.16, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit and beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. That word in the Greek when it says that he was beheld by the angels, it means literally that they gawked. 
It means that their mouths hit the ground, so to speak, and their eyes were wide open. And they said, I can't believe that the God that we have worshipped all these eons has draped himself in humanity to save these shepherds who are outcasts. And they were gawking. They were blown away. And it says that a heavenly host appeared. You know what a heavenly host is? It's a band of soldiers. It's an angelic band of soldiers. The heavenly hosts appears. The soldiers of heaven appear because their chief, their commander in chief is now visible. And they look and they sing glory to God in the highest. All the heavenly hosts together. And they end by saying, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Jesus was born and is the Prince of Peace. Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. You need to know today that God can only be pleased with you if you come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He died on the cross what is called a propitious death. That is, he was the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath and the judgment and the righteous standard of God. And because Jesus took the wrath and the judgment and met the standard of God, when we come to him and we repent of our sins and are forgiven, and when we're placed in his kingdom, God is now nothing but pleased with you, child of God. He is pleased with you. Your standing before him is in grace because of the work that Jesus accomplished upon the cross. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. There is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. And I am begging you this morning, if you are here, and you have not repented of your sins and asked God to forgive you according to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, I am begging you today to come to Jesus. He is the only way that you can be saved. You must confess that you're a sinner. You must ask Him to save you according to what He did upon the cross, and you must receive Him in faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He came because He wants you to be saved. He wants you to have eternal life. That's what the angels were so in awe of. Great is the mystery of godliness, that he was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Do you believe in the infant king, the risen Lord today? If not, repent of your sins today and be saved. Lord, thank you for these incredible truths this historical account of your giving of the Son to us. And Lord, we pray together this Christmas season that the Son would not be missed, but that everybody would come to repentance, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I ask, and we agree together in prayer, that if there be anybody here that has not received the forgiveness of sins, that this morning, as we meditate and worship in song, They would pray and repent to you. According to your work on the cross, Jesus. And that, Father, you would save them. Thank you that as a heart cries out, save me, God, I've been a sinner. Save me and forgive me, I repent. That, Lord, you answer. You're so happy to answer. You are so happy to be draped in humanity and die upon the cross. Jesus Christ, be exalted this morning. If you repent of your sins this morning and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's important that you tell somebody. So we'll have prayer team members up here to your right, my left. 
Go and tell them, hey, I just asked Jesus to forgive me. And they'll tell you what the next steps are in your relationship with the Lord. They'll give you a Bible. They'll pray for you. It's the most wonderful Christmas of your life if that's the decision you made. Then come back and sit down and join us as we worship the King. Let's enter into a time of communing with Him, singing, praising, and blessing His name.